Welcome to another episode of Connections to Experience. Today, we are continuing the conversation around artificial intelligence with president of GlobalServe, Jamal Khan. Jamal is also responsible for our marketing, e-commerce, and data here at Connection. You may remember from our last episode, we tackled all things artificial intelligence, from it being a scientific study to how it is affecting the private and public sector. Today, we are going to specifically tackle cybersecurity and how it relates to artificial intelligence. Jamal, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Benny. Good to be back. We're so happy to have you. I was just commenting before we started that there is about 30 episodes between our first conversation. Hopefully, hopefully you guys have retained the quality, given we the have. frequency. You know what? You might have actually kicked off the elevation of quality with artificial <laughs> intelligence. Um, but so happy to have you back here. And we talked a little bit about your background in the first episode. Um, but for those that are new listeners or tuning in for the first time, give a little bit of a background around how you have worked with AI, why you're a subject matter expert, um, and what brings you to the podcast today. Yeah, so, you know, just the involvement in AI, as I expressed in the last session that we had, was around building uh, NLP-based systems around what we called human contextual data and its application in the cybersecurity space. And that had more to do with how you extract certain keywords and in certain chat rooms and other things that are more cybersecurity related. And from that, you can perhaps get an early insight into potential downstream attack vectors. So that's how I got involved in sort of this core area around AI. But I think from a cybersecurity perspective, it's something that you know, I've been working on and with as you know, with my Commodore 64, mm -hmm. you know, in the 80s onwards. And then, you know, when we had a more connected network you had sort of uh, applications like Archie, Gopher, uh, IRCs, which were the internet relay chat. So there was a, and there was a whole broad spectrum of, you know, hacking, basic hacking mm -hmm. that was done in those days. And then downstream, as I explained last time around, it was around building security and trust models around internet-based applications. And that's when I got involved with a company uh, called VeriSign, mm -hmm. which had embedded their root CA certificates in browsers that we could leverage to establish bi-directional authentication and, and SSL uh, transactions around, in those days, uh, the equity applications that we were building, equity trading applications that we were building for the internet. So that's sort of the core focus around cybersecurity. And then I just, just stayed involved in this space and have been uh, involved in some way, shape, or capacity uh, ever since. And that's where that SISEC background comes from. Excellent. So we, uh, you know, throughout the historical episodes we've done, the industry of technology and really any industry, security seems right now to be the the hot button. It's what a lot of people are leading with. It's what they're talking about, especially with this unknown space of the internet and artificial intelligence, machine learning. So one thing that I always wonder is this landscape is constantly changing and it feels like we can never really you know, we're sort of chasing our tail around cybersecurity and we don't really know every time. Well, it's like a game of whack-a-mole, right, you know, the right. arcade game. You hit one, another one pops up. What do you think is sort of the 
the main reason we can't really seem to get the cybersecurity thing aligned and get ahead of it. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think a question a lot of cybersecurity practitioners probably do ponder over or should ask. And and in a lot of ways, yes, it seems overtly when you look at it optically that things are always shifting and changing. But fundamentally, there's certain foundational elements within what we consider to be the cybersecurity ecosystem that haven't changed much. And, and those are the underpinnings around which we have some of these challenges that we talk about. One fundamentally is the core protocol, uh, your internet protocol, TCP IP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a protocol that was developed primarily for resi- resiliency and, and connectivity. And if those of you who know the history of the internet, it began as ARPANET, right? It was, it was a DOD DARPA uh, project primarily designed around how to enable connectivity between multiple sites so communications could be maintained in the case of nuclear war. Mm-hmm. If you had sequential communications networks, if you just cut one of those, you would basically bring the network down by having a TCP IP based network, which was more of sort of a mesh based network. Even if you brought one core site down, you could sort of bypass that site and be able to reach your endpoint. So it was fundamentally driven around resiliency. Security was never gotcha. a core function of the protocol. Uh, so that was such a foundational element that when the protocol that runs the internet was designed, it was not designed with security in mind. Now, subsequent to that, there have been certain other standards that have come in, like IPsec and other standards. And then on the application layer, you know, you now have other sort of uh, TLS and SSL and other sort of application layer security protocols that have been established that do provide some level of security. But fundamentally, the IP protocol itself is insecure. The second thing that that never changes and will never change is human behavioral psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a, a core element in, in cybersecurity that is leveraged by either sides, right? Primarily by black hats. These are the folks who are trying to penetrate networks, which is how can I work the human psychology? This could be something as basic as social engineering, yeah. which is how do I, you know, spare fish or fish an individual and work on their underlying psychological functions to be able to penetrate certain environments. And it could be something more basic, uh, which or more fundamental, which is how developers code, how they write the core applications. So there's that basic human psychology that is at play, that is an ever enduring challenge that will never go away. Right. Uh, and and you know there's that old adage in cybersecurity that you're only as strong as your weakest link. If you've got a very strong security infrastructure, but you've got one fundamental weakness, and that's human beings, and if you can attack those you can essentially bypass the, sec- the strongest security systems that you have. So that that's a challenge that's ever enduring. So that's why we have this whack-a-mole. It never goes away. Um, and then when we're building commercial applications or applications in general, um, security again is, is an afterthought. Uh, it's usually time to market, speed to market, functionality features. And then comes in the, the mindset around how do we secure those applications. Right. And so if you're not fundamentally looking at application development from the perspective that I've got to secure this from the onset, then it becomes very difficult to bolt it on. And so hence these you know, three or four fundamental challenges have never gone away and will never go away. And we'll always have that uh, challenge. So do you see you know, sort of the role of, of I, I don't want to refer to everything as AI is more of a machine learning capability. When when people are developing new software, new systems, are they using machine learning in kind of predicting that human behavior, that unknown? Or what other roles is, is AI or machine learning taking place in that um, cybersecurity landscape? Right. So it's, it's a little bit at this point, I 
you know, I've, I've done some sort of research in this space um, and, you know, I haven't really nailed down really compelling AI implementation, at least in the private sector around cybersecurity. But I am, you know, we can see there, there are certain AI elements that are being brought in, certainly around, you know, network flow um, and then being able to sort of analyze large amounts of information and through machine learning have already established certain signatures uh, that you can then look at within a normal flow of network traffic and identify anomalies perhaps a little bit earlier. There are certainly AI engines that are coming in a very basic level, which is um, you know chatbots that enable security practitioners to access information at a, at a much faster cadence uh, and then be able to react to particular events. So you know, you, you do hear sort of the, the classic marketing spiel that, oh, we, we're an AI-based cybersecurity, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I, I think I'll let this flesh out a little bit more. Theoretically, when you talk to sort of, you know, national cybersecurity professionals who are looking at from a national challenge perspective, there's certainly a lot of work being done in this space about looking at sort of national network flows and then being able to identify certain anomalies that might be precursors to much more sophisticated national uh, attacks on infrastructure. Uh, so I think it, it's still early on, but it's 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 certainly going to be a, a compelling space that we should look at in terms of how AI straddles into uh, the cybersecurity space in the course of the next you know three to five years. Yeah, and we that was one thing we had talked about on the last episode is sometimes um, looking at uh, just where we live and thinking that this is the end all be all here in America, but you know other nations are dealing with building strategies around this, around cybersecurity, uh, implementing AI. Um, where do you, you know, in your experience and looking across globally, where and how are you seeing different nations building up capabilities around cybersecurity um, in regards to AI? So I will avoid sort of naming the nations. Just, <laughs> Don't name the nations, but, just but the what, trends. <laughs> right. But what I think you clearly see is that there are certain national uh, entities that have, you know, pretty sophisticated programs now that they've developed. And, and you know, I always, when I think about it and have these conversations with other cybersecurity professionals, um, you know, given that within the U.S. we have a very sophisticated economy with lots of job opportunities. I mean, we're right now in, at, at that stage in our economy where, you know, unemployment is very low. So usually what ends up happening is some of the smartest minds are actually working for the private sector because mm-hmm. usually ends up being more. And in terms of national defense from a U.S. cyber command perspective, it's generally a, a government run function. And I'm not going to say that they don't have really smart people. They have really super bright folks. But there's there are a limited set of resources and there's always a struggle right to get those folks, folks working in that particular uh, segment because the private sector is always grabbing some of the smarter minds, which is why within the U.S. we have a much stronger public-private sector relationship uh, yeah. where national cybersecurity is a joint uh, effort and should be, rightfully so. But conversely, in other countries where you don't have this challenge, where there's a natural pull from the private sector, mm-hmm. you have some of the smartest minds and individuals right. sitting in, in those functions. Um, so from a human resource perspective, I think there's significant parity in terms of skill set that's available available in some of those other geographies. Uh, but conversely, um, there are they in themselves have inherent weaknesses. But then sort of the yang to the ying is that some of those societies are not necessarily that digitized as we are. And we leverage on a far greater scale on a digitized infrastructure, whether it's a national infrastructure or a private sector infrastructure. 
So you you always have these pulls and, and pushes within this space. And I always think about cybersecurity capability as almost the final equalizer in a lot of ways. Mm. So you can be a much smaller player and carry a really heavy punch if you have certain capabilities and you build those. And so... Uh, again, I, I think that's where the dynamic is. There's certain, obviously, other geographies that have a far more sophisticated, comprehensive uh, means of collection. There are other uh, geographies and, and or us that have a far more sophisticated way of ana- analyzing that data set. And then again, I think the, the, the best approach to building out a comprehensive national cybersecurity infrastructure is when you have public-private sector relationships. And, and so as you're building out the core applications, as you're laying down that private uh, infrastructure you're sort of working in tandem the uh, the government agencies to establish a more secure infrastructure. Yeah, I've always been I'm as everything evolves, I I'm increasingly curious about, you know, how you sort of straddle that line of public and private sector and really how you don't lose control of what data is being shared or what work is being done um, because there's not the same rules between private and public sector. So what are some of the inherent challenges, you know, from a privacy, you know, even security, looking at security, privacy is a huge issue. If you've got private corporations that are collecting data, sharing data with public sector, I'm going to get all my privates and publics <laughs> confused. But how do we straddle that line without really losing some of the inherent privacy or security across public and private sectors. I, I, I think that's a very, very important point, And it speaks to how we want to develop ourselves as a society downstream. These are implications for us as an overall society. And so I think you don't straddle that line. It's, it's you've got to be super cautious. So there is no straddling and there are no sort of gray lines. There have to be very significant, well-defined rules of engagement. And that is if we as a society want to continue down the path of being a pluralistic, civil liberties-based society, then you've got to really define those lines. And conversely, both counterparties, whether it's the public sector or the private sector, need to be comfortable with that because I think there's a common purpose. Uh, but there is no sort of you know, guessing this process. There, there, there needs to be a really well thought out, well defined. And I think some companies are far more mature in their approach to this. Now that does lead to some consternation within sort of this counterparty mm-hmm. uh, arrangement. But I think over the long run, that is the right approach if we are to sustain the, the form of uh, society that we live in. But I, I think it's always a slippery slope. You've got to be super, super cautious. And, and I think on both ends, because that serves the common purpose of um, us having a society that is a pluralistic, open society um, where individual rights are, are uh, held um, strong. So uh, again, I, I don't think there is any gray lines. There have to be really well-defined rules of engagement. Yeah, because I always you you see um, lots of companies and lots of solutions and lots of, you know, development going on. And I, you know, I think of it from a, a, a private company point of view, you, you see it a lot, you see adoption of a technology or a solution, and it might not be the right thing. So it's either not used or something goes awry. That's okay, not okay, but not as sensitive in a private organization as it is, you know, in a nation state. Right. You can't say, oh, I chose the wrong vendor and now my entire nation is under scrutiny, scrutiny, scrutiny. Right. <laughs> There's a blooper for you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, you don't kind of have the same leeway to make small mistakes yeah. when you're dealing with a na- you know, national, national security. Entity. Right, so yeah, national, national entity, entity is a sovereign. And right. a sovereign has 
far more uh, you know compelling control over a society so you've got to be super careful I right agree. absolutely and it so you you mentioned sort of we're not you know why we're chasing our tails is really we don't have the the infrastructure hasn't been designed to wrap around cybersecurity. so when we look at all of the different nations and like you said they're you know building at a different pace have different resources you know if the core infrastructure is weak of a nation how does a a government and the agencies that it works with build a security proposition around that. Right. I mean, so that's sort of the the, the twenty thousand, whatever the proverbial number <laughs> the dollar sort of question, and it is a struggle. It is a and it's a it's it's a constant chasing your tail sort of a struggle. You know, there's a lot of good work being done uh, here in the U.S. around building out sort of core capabilities and, again, the public-private sector sort of relationships. And to be honest with you, if just going back 15, 20 years ago, if somebody asked me this question as, as I was involved in building some of that, you know, core infrastructure, especially in the what we consider the public uh, areas such as utilities and power uh, and things of that sort. Well, I, I did imagine, but I, I didn't think it would happen so quick in terms of the, the changing dynamics and shifts around technology adoption in what we call industrials. And and so as industrials themselves are becoming more automated and bringing in technology at, at the core level, the threat itself increases. And as you sort of now straddle into the IoT space where you know we're establishing sensors, and that's again coming from the need to right. automate the industrials. Um, so you can understand, you know, what, what systems are working, what systems are not working, what's the downtime. And then, again, bringing AI to provide some level of predictive analytics into how those industrials operate. Um, that in itself opens up a huge attack surface for potential ingress. And, and so, you know, again, I, I don't think there's, there's an avoidance. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not if, but when mm-hmm. uh, that attack is likely to happen. The one sort of saving grace in cybersecurity is if you use it, you lose it. And so from a national attack perspective, there's always this sense that as you're building out your, your what we cons, you know, consider to be your cyber munitions, you tend to sort of keep it in store. Mm. You, you just don't preemptively use it willy-nilly. Right. Uh, the, the, the threat to that infrastructure on a, on a day-in, day-out basis would potentially come from, from sort of uh, non-state actors, most, most likely, in the short run. When you're looking at cyber warfare, it's generally going to come from state actors, and, but that's usually going to happen when, when uh, and it, a very significant event happens because there's that, that underlying belief that if you use it, you lose it because you use it once. The, the other party actually then understands how to mitigate those risks. Right. But I think it's, a, it's an established fact that no system is secure fully. It'll never, ever be fully secured. And it should also be considered an established fact that systems are going to get penetrated. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I always thought of myself as a you know, somewhat savvy practitioner within this space till the day I got some of my systems and infrastructure penetrated. Uh, and the sense of helplessness, it almost took us three or four days to sort of get that infrastructure back wow. up and running, you know, and, and, and sort of understanding how weak we were in certain controls that we never tested or checked. I think till you truly get penetrated, you really don't know whether it's <laughs> the old, it's the old saying, you don't know what you don't know, you, what you, you don't, don't know. know where you're weak and, and until I'll tell you someone attacks it. Simple <laughs> things spot. like it's the simple things that you never focus on, which which one should if the processes are well defined, uh, which is, you know, will your backups ever be able to bring it back up? Right. Uh, and how fast can you recover from a backup? Now you're taking backups of certain core systems, but if you're not on an ongoing basis testing whether you can leverage those backups to bring up your infrastructure, 
That's a very basic thing right. that you should do. But a lot of people don't. They think, oh, we're just taking backups when things go south. Yep. Well, we've got our backups. Well, you go to those backups and you suddenly realize as you're trying to recreate from those backups, it takes a hell long longer than you thought it would. Right. And so those are the small elements uh, that you only realize when your systems actually do get penetrated. But so I think to the question of national infrastructure, you know, there is the public-private sector relationship. Uh, I think as any good security practitioner would tell you, uh, there are concentric circles of security that one has to uh, consistently build. You should expect those circles to get penetrated and you should have a very strong remediation, you know, sort of process in play and mechanism to how to get yourself out of those, uh, those challenges. So as we get more advanced, and we always talk about the pace of technology is moving faster than it ever has before. And you mentioned IoT. We know 5G is near here on the horizon in terms of mass consumption. With that pace, do you have any sort of concern about, you know, we have, you can have an attack. It's like you said, it's bound to happen. But the pace that technology is moving and the pace that, you know, national governments are able to build up security. Do you have any sort of concern around when those two maybe come together where we've moved too fast and we don't really have the security plays in yeah, place? Yeah, I, I think we're well beyond that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we're, we're in a stage where technology, and have been for a while, and I think it's been sort of a struggle from, from day one, where technology innovation far outstrips any means of securing that environment, which is why, personally, as a security practitioner, I'm always of the view that, yes, you should take all those lessons that we've learned as, as good security practitioners in terms of building out your security infrastructure, which is process controls, infrastructure, people, uh, training, you know, all of those elements, but you should Take for granted that you are going to get penetrated. And then the question becomes, as that attack vector happens, how do you identify it fast enough? And how do you remediate and get yourself out of that hole fast enough? Right. That's the, I think that's where a lot of cybersecurity innovation is going to come in the future with, in, in terms of identification and remediation. Yeah, the skill is coming back from the attack, not preventing. Right, the I, I think preventative. You've you've still got to do the basic yep. because that kind of helps avoid some of the most sort of fundamental attacks. Otherwise, your infrastructure just won't be up because you know you could potentially have a script giddy out there, who's uh, who's penetrating your systems every day and bringing your core infrastructure down. So you've right. got to do the basic stuff. Uh, but any level of sophisticated attack on your environment will eventually be successful. So now the question is, Are you? do you have the controls and mechanisms and the processes and the systems to bring yourself? And again, that's where partnerships come in. Partnerships like with Connection, you know, with, with our cybersecurity team and others, where do you have a good mem team member or set of relationships that you can leverage from uh, a SWOT perspective? You know, you've got an event that's happening. You need really deep skill sets to come in and try and at least help you stop those attacks. So that's a SWAT uh, team or a Tiger team. Right. Where's that relationship? And then post that in, in parallel, you're running through you know, forensic analysis to identify the core areas of ingress, those attack vectors, so you can start buttoning that down. While in parallel, you're also running a process control, uh, sorry, a, a, an infrastructure reboot, which is how do I build, bring back my system from, uh, from all of my backups. So you've got, when an event happens, you've got three or four core elements running in parallel. Now, either you build that capacity internally or you actually partner with uh, with organizations that can bring that uh, to your to that effort to that fight. So that's generally how I perceive this. 
So what, that's a, that's a good segue. So uh, Connection has a great uh, cybersecurity practice here. And so tell us a little bit more about how that practice, I think you kind of hit a couple of those bullets, but what the team here actually can do for those public and private sector companies that allow them to, you know, mitigate the risk that they, they have in front of them. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm a very skeptical cybersecurity consumer. So I, <laughs> I my background, you know, I, I, used, I used to work uh, at VeriSign and, and built a lot of cybersecurity um, elements. And we were sort of the, a vendor for a lot of different companies and, and public private sector. So I always be, believe, especially in the CISEC space, that depth is more important than cross-functional capabilities. Mm. And so within our group, what I can you know, tell our customers and others who are listening that um, you know, there's a core area around assessment that I think our team does a phenomenal job of. And they have a very sort of well-defined process, the SLO process, which is the security landscape optimization process mm-hmm. uh, that they've, you know, they've done a really good job around and have worked for on many years to sort of fine tune that. So if you were to ask me where our core capability lies, it's in providing our customers with a view of their landscape. You know, what is the reality? Where do you sit? And then giving them a guidance in terms of how to sort of uh, bridge the gaps that they have and close those those vulnerabilities that they have. Now, so it's obviously, finding those, so finding those weaknesses before before they actually become weaknesses. Yeah, and I think the other element that we we certainly bring to bat is that as you're then building out that core infrastructure, you know, Connection has the relationships with those security vendors that we can bring the best to breed uh, of products, uh, whether it's endpoint security, whether it's core security, whether it's cloud security, whether it's analytics or or log analysis, you know, Connection provides that broad spectrum of um, products that we can bring that are partner products and integrate mm-hmm. into those challenges that companies might have. Yeah, and the other the other thing that we I uh, we did a a nice uh, a, a podcast series with the security team, and they talked about how their team. To your point, you don't. It's it works until someone hits it, and then you lose all sort of. Um, you can't use that trick again. Right, right. You use it, you lose <laughs> you it. You use it, you lose it. But that comes into the whole white hat versus black hat thing. And I know that our team definitely has some capabilities to go in and try to hit those right. weak points and find out where those vulnerabilities are. Um, so, how does that sort of the white hat um, black hat work with our team? Well, I, I think, and this may be a good sort of segue to sort of explain that we will be uh, hopefully, um, and, and you know, Rob uh, probably has a better sense of this, but I think end of Q1, sometime in Q2, we'll, we're probably going to be launching um, a, a, an exercise that where we will show a set of white hat resources going against a set of black hat resources. Oh, I love and, that. Yeah, it's it's going to be phenomenal. And we've we've designed that and we're basically going after an, uh, an industrial infrastructure. So it's it's how white hats would potentially secure an industrial infrastructure and then how black hats would go after that uh, infrastructure. For complete transparency, I'm wearing the black hat those in, in, in when that exercise happens. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so myself and my my team, uh, we will try and penetrate that environment um, while uh, Steve uh, and others would, would be securing it. It's almost I, I, like a cybersecurity video game. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we kind of know who's going to win that, but uh, <laughs> it's almost a foregone conclusion. Uh, but um, that's you know one of the things that we do quite effectively, which is we're, we're trying to straddle and wear both hats. And I think what I really like about our team is that they bring a diverse skill set. And again, in cybersecurity, you cannot be very myopic. The minute you're myopic, you know, you've lost the plot. 
So where you may, we may have someone in our team who has you know, multiple decades of experience in working on, on in the government uh, uh, segment. You have folks who've worked in the private sector and you folks who've straddled both. And, and then you have folks who are working the uh, OSI uh, stack, right? So they're really strong in a layer four or networking layer. And then and there are team members who are very strong in the application layer. In a team, you should always look at that multifunctional, cross-functional right. skill set in cybersecurity. You cannot necessarily have, you know, a team that's very uniform. You want to have diversity. Right. Right, because then you miss all of those other spots, like not knowing how long it's going to take to bring your backup back. Right, because folks (laughs) who are trying to attack your your system are very resilient. They're extremely creative. Right. And and I think, you know, I often say cybersecurity in a lot of ways is it's more so art than technology. That comes from the need for someone to be very creative in, in order to be able to sort of get into these systems. Yeah, and that's, uh, we've heard the term a lot, uh, ethical hacking. I think I said hacking for good once and I was quickly <laughs> corrected. Um, but that's the whole, you know, the value of the ethical hacking is you have that broad team that knows, has that expertise in all different areas and they're proactively trying to show weakness versus attack you it's at a, that weakness point. Exactly, it's a proactive yeah. service yeah. that tries to preempt and identify uh, issues. So you sort of wear the black hat for a day or a week or whatever, and, and you try and attack the systems and see if you can get in. And you can do that through two different approaches. So you've got the white box approach and you've got the black box approach. In a white box approach, uh, you work with the in- folks who have managed the system where they give you an insight into that full environment. So you don't have to do much what we call fingerprinting analysis. You kind of know what the infrastructure mm-hmm. is and, and you can do white box ethical hacking in a much shorter period of time, but then you can have a true black box, which is someone coming in with absolutely no visibility on the infrastructure and, and then trying to penetrate the environment. So you can do a combination of those. Awesome. So I look forward to the webinar, the white hat versus black hat webinar. That should be a really cool experience. So looking at this more broadly around cybersecurity, what do you really see in the landscape of challenges um, on a consumer level, public sector, private sector level, sort of as a whole? Yeah, so that's a pretty broad question. question. So (laughs) I'll I'll probably go on a little bit of a monologue, but you know, from, and that's absolutely right. So you can kind of segment this space in, in sort of what the individual or consumer world looks like and what's the public infrastructure challenges and what are sort of the quasi government and government state challenges uh, out there. So from a consumer perspective, I think it's pretty evident. How do we maintain and manage control over our data? Mm. Uh, our privacy, yeah. our privacy, our data, our information, uh, because uh, as as we ourselves, from a consumer perspective, are becoming more digitized, have access to our online banking applications, and so on and so forth, uh, that in itself becomes a pretty significant challenge, and and we we see those threats on an ongoing yeah. basis, whether and, it's the Equifax yeah. issue or other challenges that have happened. That's a pretty insidious, on a very personal level, impacts all of us. And we get do do you feel like we're more People are getting more comfortable just with being so, you know, for lack of a technical term, willy-nilly with our own information. No, I, I like think we walk around with our banking information on our phone, with every all of our personal information on our phone, all of our conversations. And we as consumers are more and more comfortable just pushing our data, out, I, our I, information out there. I think if you look at our gen, my generation, and uh, that's probably the Gen X, Gen Y kind of time frame, uh, you know, we were somewhat skeptical, so we're somewhat cautious. You know, post our generation, I think there came a group that kind of was born in the Instagram worlds mm-hmm. and the Snapchat worlds and 
things of that sort. They're, they're super comfortable with these platforms and devices. Their whole world operates around those. But I, and I maybe, this is maybe too early to call, but when I look at my kids who are much younger, um, you know, in their teens, mid-teens, and they're a little bit more skeptical. Yeah? They absolutely are. And they are a little bit more cautious. Now, it could be something that, and I know within the school systems, there's a lot of training and education yeah. that is now part of the curriculum that talks about cyberbullying and cyber challenges mm-hmm. and cyber issues. And that made be something that's made them a little bit more skeptical about yeah. this technology. So I'm hoping that that helps bring some level of moderation in how they perceive the utility of these tool sets and toolkits and, and this medium in general. Uh, but but that threat with from a private sector or consumer perspective is, you know, access to our data uh, information. And, you know, in some respects that straddles in as we are starting to automate our homes more, you've got those thermostats that are automated, you've got TVs that are smart TVs, you're bringing that attack surface well within the house that did right. not exist. And that's going to increase with IoT sensors and other things as well. So that's, I think that landscape is there to stay. I'm hoping uh, the next generation becomes a little bit more cautious and, and, and self-regulates themselves. Private sector, same challenges we've, been, we've had for the last 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it's malware, whether it's bringing down your core production environments and that causes impact, financial impact, whether it's uh, a matter of um, uh, gaining access to a private sector company's customer information that has huge impacts on the brand, that has financial uh, impact as well, whether, again, it's Target or some of those other larger events that we've, we've seen in the last few years. Um, so that, that challenge exists. And, and then sort of if you straddle into the quasi-public sector world, you're looking at ransomware, you know, whether it's uh, state, local governments, uh, whether it's school districts. Uh, you'll be surprised how many school districts yep. are getting hit by ransomware, and it's you know it's a shame. And and and, and that that infrastructure, because as schools are getting more digitized, you know, s- uh, again, Wi-Fi networks and and um, smart boards, and right. everyone's got a Chromebook. Um, the attack surface has expanded significantly. And then, last but not least, the 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 public sector, the government sector. I think that is a huge challenge, and and something that I'm super nervous about. And again, like as I mentioned earlier on. Uh, 15, 20, 20 years ago, I wasn't as concerned. Mm. And I'm generally a very conservative person. I'm not given to, you know, one hype or the other. And so 20 years ago, as, as we were building out and digitizing some of the that core uh, national infrastructure, uh, there was a concern and we were building sort of the basic uh, elements of securing that infrastructure. Uh, but the threat landscape was still not as sophisticated. Mm. You know, the democratization of the abilities to um, attack systems is also something that's changed and shifted and it's got base. So I think that challenge is going to be a very significant challenge for the next you know, 20, 30, 40 years, un- unless there's a fundamental shift in how we right. handle data, how we build our networks, uh, right. and that comes back down to that core protocol. Right. That TCP IP protocol uh, will never change or shift. And so, you know, I know, and I know there are certain other sort of uh, protocols like HIP and others that, that are trying to address some of those core IP challenges. But I think on a national infrastructure level, we, we still need to contend with a pretty significant challenge. The challenge is going to get much worse. And those capabilities, as we talked about, are going to be built. And now you bring in AI that l- brings in some level of automation right. to the attack efforts but conversely also bring some level of automation to the remediation to the security, efforts. Yeah, right, so, yeah. you, so, so again, it's it's a cat and mouse and it's been forever the cat and mouse you know, chase between those two entities as one party builds stronger tool sets, 
to attack the other build stronger tool sets to protect. And I think we're going to be in this struggle for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds extremely optimistic. No, <laughs> um, no and I, I think that's a, a great place for us to wrap here. We're going to continue this series with you and, you know, looking at the we have the foundation of artificial intelligence. We've chatted about um, the cybersecurity risks of just you know, nations and the private sector as a whole. Um, I'd love to have you come back and we kind of dig into bringing those two things together when we integrate AI into um, our worlds and, you know, machine learning takes over where we have control, where we start to lose control and get some of your thoughts around that topic sure, as well. The, the machine is coming. The machine <laughs> is coming. So Jamal, thank you so sure, much absolutely. for joining me today. It's such a pleasure and can't wait to have you back. Great. Thank you, Benny. Thanks. 